Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Giselle Donnelly, and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined today by my colleagues. Yulia Zhoja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington University, and... Dali Burohat, also with AEI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that have emerged along the line that runs from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front and about why these issues matter to the United States. Today, we're going to talk very specifically about why the war in Ukraine matters to the United States, because there's a growing concern among many Americans, and particularly among Republicans and Republican candidates, that our interests are not really engaged in Ukraine. So we very much want to try to feel our way through these issues and to try to explain why, in fact, the outcome of the Ukraine war is very important to Americans. If you enjoy our discussion in this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks very much. Yulia and Dalibor, I would like to begin briefly, if I can, uh, and exercise several ghosts that I have uh, going back a number of years uh, in my career serving as a scribe to a variety of national defense and national security review commissions, where it was my job to translate the um, conclusions uh, of a bipartisan uh, group of uh, distinguished Americans whose job it was to review the formal security and strategy documents produced by the Pentagon and administrations passed more broadly. And in particular, it was important uh, much of the work of those commissions focused on defining what, in fact, were American geopolitical and strategic interests. And there was remarkable consistency and agreement on this. If I could summarize uh, uh, <laughs> what I wrote time and time again, it would sound something like this. As a global power, the United States is concerned first in securing its citizens and the contiguous and, and the United States itself, the territories that are part of the United States. But there's more to it than that. As a global power, the United States has global interests. In particular, we care about three important balances of power that go up to make, that go into making up the international order, as it is called. That's the balance of power in Europe, which has been the longest standing American geopolitical interest, the balance of power in East Asia, in the Western Pacific, likewise a longstanding interest. And certainly since the 1970s, the balance of, or even since 1945, in the meeting between Franklin Roosevelt and the Saudi kings, the balance of power in the Middle East region. Moreover, there are a couple of sort of related uh, regions or theaters that are important. As a global nation, as a trading nation, as a commercial nation, we're interested in being able to use the seas, the skies, um, near-Earth space, and now cyberspace, as it's called, for purposes of commerce without interruption by adversaries. And finally, and one thing that really distinguishes an American approach to the world from uh, other people's approach to the to the world is that we are driven by our political principles. We consider these material interests not simply moral interests, or rather, maybe it's better to say we see the intersection between our material and our moral interests. And if I could just offer that as a straw man, a framework for the discussion that we're going to have, uh, I think it may be a good way to try to dissect the subject and to try to see whether the war in Ukraine meets these yardsticks or how it measures up against these traditional tests, longstanding, uh, widely agreed elements of American security architecture. So I just toss that out there. Feel free to set it on fire or pick it apart. Before Dalibor gets ready to set it on fire, I want to interject the the other straw man in the room that, that Giselle has been elegant enough not to mention. And that's obviously DeSantis, um, who says Ukraine is not a vital interest. Now, according to Giselle's definition, 
he has no idea what he talks about. So, um, so then over to you, Dalibor. How do we? Yeah, you said it, not me. <laughs> how do we? How do we marry or divorce national interests from Ukraine in the perspective of? from the perspective of DeSantis and from the opposite perspective where I think all of us stand? I think there is uh, a decision we have to make uh, in the course of this conversation, the earlier the better, about the sort of arguments we want to engage with. So when Governor DeSantis put out that statement last week where he said that U.S. vital interests concern our southern border and our geopolitical competition with China, I would argue that that definition uh, falls short of you know what somebody like Giselle uh, just 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 articulated and just leaves out many important components of what our geopolitical interests really are. So I think it might be more productive to focus on you know arguments put forward by people like Senator Hawley or Elbridge Colby or. Kevin Roberts and and, and Bridge Colby wrote an opinion piece together for the Time magazine this week where they say that we live in a world in which we have to prioritize. Right? So so all that sort of things that, that, that Giselle listed are certainly valid. It is in our interest that, that Ukraine prevails in defending its country. Uh, but given that resources are limited, US leaders have to make decisions about where to focus and where to allocate money, manpower, weapon systems, etc. And and the corollary of that argument is that by focusing on Ukraine and spending 113 billion on Ukraine, we are making it more difficult to deter a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. I think that's the sort of argument that we want to tackle in this in this conversation. And I try to sort of present it in, in a, as fair minded way as possible so that we can now delve into it. Well, I think also as long as we're naming names here, we have to mention Donald Trump, who is really the ghost in the room and the magnetic attraction that is pulling uh, the Republican leadership in the House of Representatives and candidates like Governor DeSantis into the orbit that he has established over, you know, since he was has become a presidential candidate. Yeah, I think we need to Dalibor address these things head on, but not lose sight of the fact. And I don't want to succumb prematurely to the idea that strategy making is simply a set uh, or an exercise in, you know, numerically prioritizing things. If what we're trying to achieve is a systemic um, order, uh, you know, simply to cut off uh, a couple legs of the stool isn't going to mean, you know, it's going to collapse the school, the stool as easily as, you know, failure to, to address perhaps the principal threats, but by all means, let, let's dive into it and try to fit Ukraine into the traditional construct of American interests. With the danger of making this more broad than it necessarily needs to be, but trying to address this part of policymakers, um, thinkers that are trying to shape U.S. strategy, I think there's maybe two things that at least help me, but I'm hoping help others too, to make sense of this. I, to me, it's a, a matter of degree. I'm not sure Donald Trump himself would have the same list as DeSantis, the way DeSantis has um, created this list of priorities, because he, for um, a particular reason, shows America first, World War II um, logo of we won't be intervening, and actually we didn't intervene until territorial defense. So that's kind of one end of the spectrum of this prioritization. DeSanti seems to be picking from Giselle's broad list and saying, well, it's either one or the other we need to prioritize. And this is kind of the larger point that helps me um, understand this. I don't think, I think it's wrong 
um, conceptually to think about it as either or, but rather I think we should think about it on a spectrum. I think DeSantis is arguing if one end of the spectrum is Coast Guard and territorial defense, that's a one. And at the under, other end of the spectrum is interventionism everywhere um, at any time, that's a 10. DeSanti seems to be on a two to three. Um, and if we are defining national interest in a matter of, of degree uh, and in a matter of a global power, then that means alliances, that means partnerships, um, and that means being able to do more things than one at the same time. And even more so, and that maybe brings us to European security as, as one of the three elements um, that Giselle listed earlier, even more so if we're looking at how different the 21st century security, national security too, is from 20th century, 19th century. We know with, and we'll get into that a bit later in the conversation, we know that we cannot think of Ukraine, Russia without China. We cannot think of Ukraine, Russia without European partners. And we can certainly not think about Ukraine, Russia without the United States what would that look like? What would European security broadly look like without the United States' help, right? This is kind of the problem where we're stuck. If I, if I may, I think there are two sort of distinct issues which are at play. The first one is this question of trade-offs, right? By doing more in one theater, we can do less in the other theater. Uh, that's one sort of like Thing that we might want to focus on. The other one is this question of connections that exist between the two theaters. So, you know, this question of why is it that Xi, Xi Jinping went to Moscow and why is it that the Japanese prime minister was in Kiev? Why is it that Eastern Europeans are investing heavily into their ties with Taiwan in some cases and, and how that sort of fits into the, the picture of, 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 of the sort of order that America has created and the alliances, alliance structures that, that we've created. And I think both of these are really important. But it comes to this first question of trade-offs. I think at some in a very basic level, it is true that if you put a Patriot battery in Ukraine, you can't simultaneously put it in Taiwan. <laughs> right? So so people who say, well, you know, spending more here, we have fewer resources there. Like at, at, no, at face value, it's a, it's, a, it's a valid claim. Setting aside this question of the state of our defense industrial base and, and how can that be tackled, and I think Giselle has thoughts on that, I, I just wanted to say that the, the, the solution which is proposed by, by you know, Colby and Roberts and Holly and others is just, just wrong-headed in the sense that they say Europeans should be able to, to address this problem on their own. Our first order priority is China. Uh, and therefore, we should just cut Ukraine loose and let you, you Europeans deal with that. I think that just neglects this question of how you induce Europeans to step up. And and if we know anything from from recent history, it is that you don't get Europeans to step up by by just sort of abandoning the the the, the, the fight by walking away. I mean that 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 that, that achieves the exact opposite effect. I mean it provides a permission structure, so to speak, for Germans and the French to do less rather than to do more. I mean, the way we got leopards into Ukraine was by providing 31 Abrams tanks. And and, and, and so, so so I think it's just, just completely wrong-headed to, to, to assume, as many self-styled realists do, that, that we'll get our friends to do more by doing less ourselves. I, I just think that that doesn't really work at all. Uh, just to pick up on your point, Delabor, can we start to try to like start small, sort of small, as not really small, but um, can we define both what the good outcomes? I mean, let's talk about Europe per se, so we can at least establish what the trade-offs entail. You know, what 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 is to be won in Europe and what might be lost in Europe, because the original. Uh, sort of realist uh, critique was that 
The Russians have a legitimate sphere of influence that includes Ukraine, and it's sort of the glacis of you know depth in Eastern Europe, and that we should acknowledge sort of the legitimacy of Russian supposed security concerns. So why don't we just start by outlining what the risks and benefits are to the European balance and then try to place that in the larger global context. Well, isn't it on the one hand that if the United States, let's go the the one scenario, the, the extreme scenario um, of DeSantis, um, the DeSantis group, let's call it that. Um, <clears throat> if the United States today in a year says, let's not deliver military aid anymore. Let's, based on what Dalibor was saying, let's um, have the Europeans fend for themselves. Then we have two elements. On the one side, we have Ukraine failing, right? There's no way that the Europeans have, and I'll go into this in a second, either the political will or the capabilities to sustain Ukraine by themselves, because Russia is a military power, because Ukraine has the largest um, territory of a um, European country, etc. And then we have a European mess on our hands, right? We can argue that it wouldn't lead to um, Russia immediately going into NATO territory, and it depends on what president will be in the White House, etc., But sooner or later, in any way, even beyond Ukraine, if we think Ukraine is not as important as European security broadly, we have a huge mess on our hands and we can say bye bye to European security the way the in the fragile way that it exists right now. And then on the other hand, we must be looking into exactly the patterns that already exist and that Dalibor was mentioning. So maybe to spell it out even more, Central and Eastern Europeans, there's differences between them, um, but they're doing more than they can. They're doing per capita, many of them way more than the United States is doing because to them it's existential. It is about European security, etc. Western European countries will say, well, this is not existential to us, at least not now. And so if uh, the American leader is not doing more, then why would we? And so either way, you have politically and not just in security, hard security terms, a catastrophic outcome of European security, way more unstable, way more... Uh, problematic than we have it already now in this very fragile state, right? Delabor, what's your take? What strikes me uh, as as important is that is is, is that if, if if the U.S. were really to sort of give up on Ukraine and and, and perhaps even on 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 NATO, uh, then I mean the realists are correct that Europe, in principle, has the resources to deter a Russian invasion. I mean, gosh, even Poles on their own would probably defeat the Russians, like if, 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 if there were an actual fight put on. Uh, but by sort of withdrawing from from Eastern Europe in this fashion, we just give up any leverage over the sort of shape of the outcomes that that materialize as a result of that. You can imagine a situation in which. Uh, you know, European strategic autonomy with grumbling sort of Germans and and, and and French stepping up a little bit is is just enough to deter the Russians from, you know, parts of Eastern Europe that are currently part of the EU and NATO. Yet the the, the broader region becomes becomes a hot mess, like it's been in, in the Balkans, where where Ukraine is is, is permanently unstable. Uh, and where where Europeans uh, might not be in a position to do more on their on their own, and the question is whether like that that's a sort of Euro- sort of European continent we can live with and be comfortable with. And I would argue that it's not. Uh, more importantly, it sort of connects to this question of what our own big ticket priorities are, and if we want to compete with China. I would venture to say that we need allies to do that, that that we 
you know, would want to bring the the world's third largest economy along, namely the European Union. And you have to find ways to elicit European cooperation on, you know, something like 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 China, where we would be demanding them to make economic sacrifices of 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 of, of various kinds. So so by just sort of cutting Ukraine loose by by saying, well, you know, you Europeans should fend for yourselves. It's the exact opposite way as 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 the one that we should be pursuing if we want to actually build an alliance to to contain China or 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 sort of deter China from from doing bad things in the in the Pacific. And before we we segue entirely to China, because I think these different battlefields, potential battlefields are artificially um, separated and it's worth pondering on that. It's also, and Giselle can maybe speak to that much better than anybody else, um, at least on this call, um, and and that is, is it really a zero-sum game or is it actually just rhetoric? And there's a lot to gain from um, investing into Ukraine now. We already made the argument that the shorter this is, the less costly it will be, but that has the premise that we're in for the long run. Um, but if we're looking at je- just um, the battlefield and just the investments, sure, we're shipping military aid into Ukraine, but the list of military capabilities that the United States is and can even more produce um, in the shopping list of countries, allies around the world and partners from Central and Eastern Europeans all the way to Japan and Korea is just getting longer and longer. Now it's a matter of how much can the United States produce in HIMARS, in Patriots. Um, but isn't that the opposite of a blank check? Isn't that actually making money? So, so, so we can sort of keep on track. I'm just going to you know, give my bottom line assessment of what uh, what's his thing? For, you know, first of all, and maybe I've taken this whole Eastern Front thing too much to heart. But <laughs> if we, if Ukraine were to be, or, or Russia were to come out of it, let's look at, let's look at it from a Moscow point of view, um, with something that they could believe was a success, then for us, the cost of stabilizing Europe and securing the Eastern Front. Uh, even if it's just um, NATO member states, will increase. It will increase a lot, as will the risk of further conflict. Um, So defending uh, the Eastern Front that includes Ukraine is one proposition, and, and we should not delude ourselves. I mean, the fact that this war has expanded from what it was prior to last February means that, that international or European security is the central issue in transatlantic relations. So you can't undo that. So I would just say uh, the risks are greater and the costs are higher if Russia, quote unquote, prevails in, in some sense. Whereas if Ukraine wins, uh, the prospects for restabilizing the continent and returning to a secure peace and the prosperity that has has uh, come with it is immeasurably enhanced. The, the, the military alliance is more coherent and stronger, um, and the cost to the United States will be much, much less. And the likelihood that European powers of one kind or another will bandwagon to use a horrible term of political science with us uh, rather than hedge against uh, further Russian aggression seem to be, you know, sort of immeasurably greater uh, if there's a positive outcome. Europe will be less a distraction if Ukraine wins and more of a distraction from dealing with China if Russia prevails. Maybe we want to move on from 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 this just just a few inches to 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 this question of of of, of the connections between what's happening in Ukraine and what's happening in 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 Asia. Sounds good. When um, Senator Hawley gave his speech at the Heritage Foundation 
recently, he he mocked those who believe that, and I quote, defending Ukraine is basically the same thing as deterring China, that if one dictator is allowed to seize territory by force, it will embolden others. And so stopping Putin is basically the same thing as stopping Xi Jinping. He calls this magical thinking. He blames what he calls the uniparty for this for this view of the war in Ukraine. I guess uniparty, it's people like us. So if you know center right, center left, the the, the blob, whatever <laughs> you want to call it. Uh, I've never well. been so insulted. And Thank and and, and, and so so it's it's funny that he makes this argument at the time that Xi Jinping goes to to Moscow and negotiates basically a yuanization of Russia, uh, negotiates unlimited oil gas supplies from 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 Russia to to China. Uh, arguably at you know advantageous prices, and at the same time that he peddles this 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 peace plan for Ukraine. I mean Bruno Massage, whom we haven't had on the podcast yet, but we might want to bring him on at some point. Tweeted yesterday that it's clear after this visit that there are two possible outcomes to this war. One is a Ukrainian victory, and the other one is some version of the Chinese peace plan, an outcome that would arguably strengthen. China's position, including in 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 Eastern Europe, and no, I, I agree completely. Well, you know what's remarkable, remarkable, ripped. Sorry, one more time. Remarkable about the arguments for prioritizing China is Elbridge Colby and Senator Hawley apparently haven't talked to any Asians in this regard because you're you're quite Senator correct. China. Uh, I mean, to, you were quite correct to point out that the Japanese prime minister arrived in Kiev the same day that Xi Jinping uh, was in Moscow. Presumably, the Japanese know what they're doing. OK, you know, I think they can speak for themselves. And the same is true of other Asian nations who clearly see two things, um, that there is a geopolitical uh, connection between. I mean, Xi Jinping sees Europe, that connection clearly. And what. Yes, well, why, yes, exactly. That's why he was in Moscow. Um, and they see it as critical. I mean, you know, what is true in Europe is also true in East Asia. That is, without the linchpin of American power, the whole thing is in danger uh, of unraveling. We saw this after 9-11 uh, in particular, uh, where, you know, there were South Korean soldiers uh, who... Uh, we're in Iraq and Afghanistan. Our allies will will try very hard to support us if they can. And that is especially true of frontline states, as in Eastern Europe, so in East Asia. The Japanese, the Australians, the, the, the same way. So, um, uh, you know, again, I'm just struck by those who are, oh, we must prioritize China, we must prioritize the Indo-Pacific don't listen to voices from the Indo-Pacific. And if I can just so so the other side of this uh, of the, of this coin is the fact that the countries in Central and Eastern Europe, which are often you know small but very active allies of ours, which are very concerned about Russian aggression in Eastern Europe, are also at the forefront of pushing the European debate on China in a more hawkish direction. Uh, I'll mention Lithuania, which has decided to just live with Chinese economic sanctions and a ban on Lithuanian imports into China uh, for opening, allowing uh, a Taiwanese de facto embassy to, to open in Vilnius. Uh, the Czech Republic is sending a delegation of 150 lawmakers and diplomats and business people to Taiwan uh, in, in, in three days, led by the Speaker of, of Parliament. Uh, these countries are not doing that because of their deep-seated love for Taiwan. I mean, you know, there is certainly solidarity with sort of small democratic nation which is facing, you know, difficult and aggressive neighbors. That's certainly part of the story. But another part of the story is that they are playing this for an audience in Washington trying to signal, you know, we are willing to help, we are go willing to go out of our way to to, to be helpful and, 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 and step up. And reciprocally, we would hope that you take our own existential concerns about our own security seriously. And, and the way 
you know, a future DeSantis administration is going to build a transatlantic alliance to to contain China is is precisely by encouraging these small countries and giving them, you know, more voice and 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 empowering them to to shift the overall European conversation in a in a sort of more hawkish direction. I mean, there are other countries that have that that share the same concerns, uh, but it's it's far from a consensus view across across the EU. And you simply, if you want to deal with Huawei and TikTok and Chinese intellectual property theft, like you you have to have the EU on board collectively as a whole. It just makes that the job so much easier. To kind of sum up um, both of your points and um, draw it back to DeSantis because we cannot help ourselves. Um, I think the the main problem... Yulia, I think you should come five times a week for, uh, you know, um, exorcism of your... I'm waiting for his staff to call me. Um, So, (laughs) um, but I do think that what these DeSantis's, Trumpies um, don't understand, their biggest mistake when it comes to national security of the United States, and here, due credit to the Biden administration, frankly, is exactly this part which sounds boring and tedious and um, doesn't have short-term gains, but is really essential, and that is allies and alliances um, and the power of, I would call it, American glue, because um, it's the, the, the United States is the reason why South Korea, directly or indirectly, South Korea and Japan are becoming for the first time real actors in Central and Eastern Europe. The United States is the one who's been pushing across Europe for a decoupling from China, decoupling from Huawei under the Trump administration, to their credit um, in this context, and now pushing for more ties with Taiwan. And it also then highlights exactly how willing to sacrifice and to ally and bandwagon really frontline states are, because these are the ones that are standing out now in Europe and in East Asia compared to other allies, also important, also essential when it comes to trade and economics and the greater picture. Um, But it's the United States push and frontline allies response that really helps in the end, fight any kinds of um, fights, whether that's with Russia or with China or in the Middle East um, or beyond. And without them, back to Dalibor's point, I don't think even a global power such as the United States on their own without any support, but rather undermined by potential partners and allies can stand against anyone. Can we talk directly about um, a theme that sort of bubbled under the surface in a couple of our last uh, comments, and that is the sort of reputational influence of American power and how that's... My view would be that since the withdrawal from Iraq, particularly, but also Afghanistan and the particularly um, chaotic last uh, bit of uh, our involvement in Afghanistan... I mean, and red lines in Syria and then failure to respond to the invasion of Georgia in an effective way uh, or to the 2014 invasion of Ukraine. Many of our most stalwart, critical allies, and you have to say or wonder in particular about our East Asian allies, have some reason to question American political will and resolve and staying power um, in the like uh, and the like. Again, if we contemplate two different outcomes in Ukraine, one would seem to be go a long way to restoring confidence in American power, whereas um, the kind of uh, Trumpy DeSantis isolationism that we've been describing would really have catastrophic consequences. The willingness to stand with the United States uh, and to follow an American lead, uh, I think, would take a precipitous fall um, if we bugged out on the Ukrainians, not to put too fine a point on it. I mean, there's this idea that like 
by doing less, we somehow get more equitable burden sharing across alliances and others will step up. And unless we sort of refuse to hold everybody by their hand, like they will always be dependent on us. And I mean, the, the problem with that is that, of course, by doing less, we are sending a signal not only to our allies to step up, but we are sending a signal to everybody that, you know, now America won't be involved or won't enforce certain red lines. That sends a signal to, to those of our allies who like, might be ambivalent about us and, and encourage them to look for alternatives to, to an alliance with the U.S. And it more importantly send, sends a signal to our adversaries that, that they can now test the boundaries of you know what, what they can get away with and and just collectively like it makes for a much more dangerous world if you sort of take both of these things together it just creates more instability more willingness to on on the part of sort of rogue actors to you know test our red lines and expose our you know initial commitments and pledges as hollow ideally and and and, and it just like, like how that's conducive to U.S. interests, I, I, I frankly, frankly don't know. Like, it just makes our job much, much harder. Yulia, can you give us the view from Bucharest on this? <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, it seems to me particularly uh, apropos. Um, yeah, you know, uh, where security is tenuous at the best of times, sort of in many ways, uh, to the degree that we can see Romania as kind of someone whose instincts uh, are in hopes uh, lie with the West, but feel, again, like a frontline state uh, that could be exposed to pernicious uh, influence. I, I don't know if I can do it strictly from Bucharest, but I'll try to do it from a, f a few frontline states, um, at least in, in Central and Eastern Europe, and, and try to find what they have in common. And where I see the biggest dangers. Um, someone told me a while ago, well, um, someone not from Romania, um, telling me, well, Romania has no place to go. They have to be bandwagoning with the United States. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Look at Orban in Hungary. Look at Erdogan in Turkey. There's many places to go. They're nasty places. They're isolationists. There's not only the United States that can be isolationist and short-sighted, um, but these countries too. And it's really hard to make that argument here because, again, it doesn't bring, we are forced here in Washington to be somewhat short-sighted because we have to deal with one catastrophe or one crisis at a time. But we also kind of know, again, it's that tedious argument that it takes long-term investments, that it takes soft power and reassurances it, to be able to, in the end, because it is about that to me too, pay less, right? How do we think about the Ukraine war, a potential war in um, uh, around Taiwan um, or any others in making it making us more efficient in how we go about it and how do we not write blank checks. And the only way, in my understanding, from the frontline perspectives to do that is to think long-term and invest more efficiently now so that it doesn't cost later a lot more. I know this is kind of a very pragmatic <laughs> frontline calculation, but in the end, this is what I guess both Washington and frontline states um, have in common, that we all have to, to think in terms of costs, political costs, economic costs, um, security costs. And it just seems so obvious to me in the context of European security and beyond that if you fix it now and think about it in a coherent way, it will cost you less later. Also back to you, Giselle, in terms of reputational costs. Well, I'm going to punt over to, to Dalibor uh, for his comments on um, either the value or the overstated value of <laughs> reputational power. Well, there, there's reputational power, but, but I think we should also not lose sight of 
of, of, of just the, the commitment that is required of the United States to, to help Ukrainians win and what that would mean. Right. So, so like we don't really have that many near peer competitors or, or foes around the world. Uh, although China is, is, is the bigger of the top two. I mean, Russia has been a problem for a long time. If Ukrainians can sort of knock out the Russian military from being able to inflict damage on, 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 on third countries for the next two decades, and if it costs us 5% of the Pentagon budget, so be it. Like, how is that not a good deal? That, 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 that to me is, is a sort of question we should be asking people who say that, that it's foolish for us to, to, to support to support Ukraine uh, to the extent to which we have, or, or 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 perhaps even, perhaps even more. I mean, it's nobody is talking about U.S. servicemen, service women going to Ukraine and fighting. Nobody It's not the forever war. It's like you know somebody else is fighting. Yeah, with a writing a modest check every year, and you know we would all want it to be over soon. That's why we, you know, the the three of us would like to write a bigger check. And, and get it done this year like that, that that to me is just sort of you know rational prudent realistic thinking as opposed to this 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 idea that yeah I mean like there are real sort of material trade-offs I presume like you are not going to make you know like hundreds of new patriot batteries this year and deliver them to Taiwan like if, if, if need be I mean, it's, it's, it's well, you weren't going to do that anyway but but anyway, I mean the, the <laughs> The, the the sort of response to that issue is to just like you know become more serious as a as a as a, as a country that does face serious geopolitical challenges, including in in the Indo-Pacific. I mean, we just have to expand the sort of defense industrial base, and in a way, the war in Ukraine has been helpful in 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 in, in, in sort of propelling that that conversation forward and exposing the gaps and 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 sort of raising. Some urgency around around fixing those 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 shortcomings. We probably wouldn't have that same conversation over Taiwan if it weren't for for Russia's invasion of of Ukraine. That's why I think it's a little disingenuous when people sort of invoke these sorts of trade offs and say, "Well, we can't really be spending all this money in Ukraine when it's needed, the money and resources and munitions in in Taiwan." Because I wonder if they had been you know, making the argument for, for, for spending this money and these resources in Taiwan had the war in Ukraine not taken place. Well, and I think we should have, um, have a little bit more nuanced understanding of the East Asian theater. One of the things that is is almost a direct refutation of this, we can't walk and chew gum at the same time argument, is that just the other day, we completed uh, an agreement with the Philippines, which we have been seeking for decades, to return to Clark Air Base there, which is the key facility for contesting Chinese ambitions in the South China Sea. It was a terrible mistake of the first Bush administration to not work harder to try to negotiate a continued U.S. presence in Southeast Asia. But now we're back, and you know the the connections between. Um, the spine that the Bush or that the Biden administration <clears throat> has shown in Ukraine, and uh, this long back and forth with a variety of Philippine leaders over uh, can we come back and under what conditions um, has been at last resolved now in our favor. Again, correlation does not imply causality. But it certainly puts the lie to this. We must do only things that are directly related to the defense of Taiwan and everything else, uh, you know, we'll just ignore. I wonder if in our final section we could speculate briefly because we're, we're time constrained here about the domestic political ramifications. And I'd just like to offer one final straw man for uh, torching. It So much, you know, first of all, the whole marriage of the Republican Party and the MAGA movement has been a disaster for the Republican Party. They've managed to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory in the last several elections. 
what what happens to uh, let's set Trump aside just because he's in the universe of his own, but what does DeSantis look like as a an applicant to be commander in chief if as is most likely the story from the you know for the remainder of this year is again Russian weakness and Ukrainian success. Um, in that case, it seems to me DeSantis looks like somebody who is trying to embrace losing, uh, whereas uh, especially if his opponent is Joe Biden, he can make a claim to be, uh, you know, a if not a war-winning president, then uh, somebody who's put uh, American interests on a path toward victory uh, in Ukraine. I, I just can't see how that, you know, how the DeSantis position, uh, as as currently formulated, is necessarily a great, uh, you know, in in he sacrificed the general election to win the mega, the hearts of mega. Well, it's 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 funny, isn't it that. If if like things continue on the current pattern, like we are likely to end up in Ukraine with some sort of inconclusive mess, frozen that, that Biden will have to somehow defend going into the election. In which point, the sort of natural line of attack for Republicans would be to say that the Biden administration just wasn't taking this seriously, wasn't doing what was needed, was trying to do it on the cheap. And, uh, and 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 therefore, you know, the sort of like Nikki Haley perspective would be, I think, much more sort of effective at at at, at sort of damaging the, uh, the 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 president's record going into the election on that front. Like if 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 DeSantis basically positions himself the way he has in that in that in that statement, like it's there is very little daylight between him and what. The administration is is, is 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 doing right. Like he is not saying that we should cut off all aid to Ukraine. He was against stepping up in 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 our assistance and 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 providing long range artillery and F 16s and and things that would be seen as as escalatory. And he he basically, I think, deprives himself of the possibility of saying, well, we should have been far more forceful, which is which is kind of weird for somebody who probably will want to present himself as sort of Mr. Tough Guy, peace through strength candidate in the general election. And conversely, um, like what, 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 what is making this even more puzzling is that if you are sort of, if you are President Biden and you're looking at the situation, like, and you know that you are facing an election in 2024, wouldn't you want to do everything for the Ukrainians so that they actually win? And so that you can actually show this as an example of your leadership and 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 sort of successful managing of alliances, rather than you know the 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 situation that we have on the on the on, on the ground today, which I mean could be altered by a successful Ukrainian offensive, uh, but I think we are still very far away from from a point in which Ukrainians retake full control of their territory, which is what really should be the goal of this the administration especially if 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 it wants to sort of create a record that's worth running on i'm a bit more cynical here and i think in in this context um desantis has the smart upper hand because we know that for biden himself the break of this full-scale invasion was the worst nightmare, right? That was not his plan, uh, an indirect war with Russia, Russian full-scale aggression on the European continent, etc. And we also know that Biden has been doing his best in his assessment um, to give Ukrainians the upper hand when he was t- taken by surprise by the fact that Zelensky did not want a ride and when his strategy is driven by fear. So with this element of driven by fear, which deters him from giving the Ukrainians what they're asking for to finish this rather sooner than later, DeSantis looks less 
fearful, right? He looks like, well, I wouldn't have done this mess anyway. I can get us out of this mess. It's not Russia and a responsible conversation about nukes that is the problem. It's the problem of getting us into this mess in the first place. You know, I I, I just think it's a little bit simpler uh, than that. I think, you know, even if Ukraine can't get to a complete victory, you know, prior to the election season next year, Biden can legitimately say, A, I was, I was hoping that this wouldn't happen. I took steps to try to deter at the last minute the Russians, but I have risen to the occasion. Carefully, you know, maybe not as forcefully or as rapidly as the three of us would have liked, but in a contest with a let's bug out. And and I don't think you can sort of say, well, I'm just not going to increase support to Ukraine, but I'm going to turn the Rio stat down by 25% or, you know, however they're going to try to square the circle of this. There's going to be a pretty, what should be an easy contrast for any competent campaign to, to paint of a president who stood up to Russian aggression and one that wants to kowtow before it. Uh, and particularly now that Russia, you know, Russia and China are so clearly linked uh, to say, yeah, sure, I kowtowed to Russia, but I would stand up to Xi Jinping. It's just not a credible uh, argument. I mean, again, in a, in a contest of, you know, for the id of the American people, um, this who's going to let the bully kick sand in our face uh, sort of uh, dichotomy is should be easy for President Biden, assuming he's the nominee, uh, to draw. On that note. That's a happy note for the Eastern Front. Let's stop now. That's right. <laughs> Let's also hope that our listeners uh, have benefited from the discussion, even if you don't agree with us, uh, although you should agree with us, uh, and that <laughs> when you're trying to uh, figure out exactly what American interests are, in regard not only to Ukraine, but to Eastern Europe, that we be the source of information for you. So everybody should use the hashtag Eastern Front Pod written as one word to let us know <laughs> why we are right okay. or wrong on Twitter. There you go. Um, right. That, uh, so let's just use that as the outro rather than the uh, uh, the, <laughs> the full version and just just uh, say goodbye and uh, thank you to our listeners for putting up with us. I'm Giselle Donnelly and for me and Yulia Zoza and Dalibur Hodge. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We always talk about the security challenges that extend from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, what we call the Eastern Front. As Dalibor has suggested, you can find much more content, more episodes, um, our newsletter, monthly newsletter at AEA.org. As I said earlier, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And finally, yeah, give us a ping on Twitter. The hashtag is one word, hashtag Eastern Front Pod. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.